and welcome back to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubov, the Dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. You know, Leslie, we've talked with guests this season about how law and lawyers have changed the world at different points in time, but there's often this tension that we've talked about, about whether people are using and creating laws to affect change in society, or whether social forces like war and other things affect how we interpret laws that already exist. So is it the case of when law changed the world, or did the world change the law? That's true, and our guest today will highlight that tension again. UVA law professor Sykrishna Prakash has written a new book about how and why the American president's powers have evolved and grown over time. The book is called The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against its ever-expanding powers. There's a lot to talk about just in that title. Sai, welcome to the show. Well, thank, uh, thank you both for having me. Sai, you've written about the office of the president before in your first book, Imperial from the Beginning, which is about the president's powers at the Constitution's founding. What was the president originally designed to do? Well, the, the, you know, the original presidency had many different functions. It was principally a law uh, executor to, to carry into execution Congress's laws, but it also had a number of ancillary authorities, uh, an interstitial authority over foreign affairs, so going beyond just merely making treaties and receiving ambassadors, but to doing other things in foreign affairs that weren't assigned to Congress or shared with the Senate. It was also given a significant check over Congress with, in the form of the veto. Uh, so even though it didn't have legislative power directly, it exercised this uh, significant influence on the le- it could exercise a significant influence on the legislative products of Congress. And then it uh, was it was supposed to supervise the bureaucracy. Um, and although that may not seem uh, as imperial as it is today, uh, compared to the executives of that era, it was uh, it was quite a sea change. So what was the bureaucracy like at the time? Uh, well, when I say it was a sea change, what I mean is compared to the anemic state executives and the anemic uh, continental executive, the, the presidency was designed to be stronger. Um, so there was a bureaucracy before there was a constitution under the Articles of Confederation. Um, and Congress supervised it as a plural executive. And that didn't work out too well. And so they eventually moved to secretaries who uh, oversaw departments. But that, too, suffered from uh, either excessive congressional micromanagement or um, congressional inattention as members of Congress came to and left the Capitol. So they thought there was a need for a one superintending officer over all these departments. And that's certainly one of the um, intended functions of the executive branch or the president in particular. So that is what the presidency was designed to do. And when did it start accruing more power? Well, you know, I think as soon as you begin, uh, you know, implementing a statute, um, it, you know, it's, ine- it's inevitably the case that uh, implementation of a, of a law will, will drift and flow in, in various ways. And, and so you see changes, you know, throughout the history of the presidency. Um, initially, presidents chose not to vigorously exercised their veto, and so they never um, plumbed how far they could go. Um, the, I think that, so that was not a change as much as a, just a decision not to you know, to use a, a lever that was given to them by the Constitution. I think, you know, the election of Andrew Jackson was a sea change in conceptions. Andrew Jackson, uh, in his first election and certainly a second, conceived himself as having a mandate from the people. Prior presidents didn't conceive of themselves as having a popular mandate, but uh, Jackson 
you know, told Congress, you know, I'm the only person who represents the entire United States. And then from Jackson, you, you went to a regime where presidents started making promises as candidates, which was not the case. But eventually, uh, presidents start making promises while, uh, while praising a system where they made none. And of course, you know, we, we eventually get into the modern era where the party platform is in part a presidential platform. And then independent of that, the presidents have their own agendas. And they run on a, you know, a policy platform of changing, changing the law in various respects. Um, and they are, they are expecting as legislative party leaders or as the party chieftain to be able to convince their uh, comrades in Congress to enact their agenda. And they hope that the opposition perceives that they have a popular mandate. The, the popular mandate idea was not part of the original Constitution because they conceived of electors voting for the president, not a popular vote. And uh, the, in the first couple of elections, you know, most of the electors were, were selected by electors and not through the popular vote. So the president had fairly expansive powers from the founding, but those powers also grew over time. What happened to increase those powers between the founding and, say, Andrew Jackson's presidency? I, I think the founding itself provided some building blocks. And as you just pointed out, there's some change conception. So the one, you know, there's several building blocks from the founding that helped the president acquire greater power. First is the idea that there's only one president and that the president, you know, is unitary. I think that gives the presidency an advantage over the other branches that are that are fractured. Uh, Article two uh, is capable of a broad reading either under the vesting clause with the grant of executive power or the commander in chief clause. Um, the fact that Congress is divided into two branches rather than being one uh, divides the opposition, so to speak, the institutional opposition. As you, as, as you guys know, the Continental Congress was unicameral, but moving to a bicameral Congress was done for purposes of compromise uh, amongst the states. Um, that, of course, means that Congress is divided. Congress is not only divided into two chambers, but it's also divided by party, which again, you know, further uh, weakens Congress. And then I think finally, the president has at uh, his or her fingertips a bureaucracy second to none. And all these institutions are uh, prone to read executive authority in expansive, aggressive ways, in part because that furthers their institutional interests, but also because they identify with the executive branch and, and wish to see executive power expanded. So it strikes me that you describe really well why the executive power grows in practice, even though it was always available theoretically. But one of the ideas that we talk about in constitutional law is the idea of ambition counteracting ambition. So as the executive branch reaches for more power, how does Congress respond? Well, you're absolutely right, Risa, that Madison talks about, you know, ambition, counteracting ambition, and, and tying the interest of the man to the place. But uh, he didn't foresee the rise of political parties um, and, and therefore couldn't foresee that some members of Congress favor the expansion of executive power when their co-partisan is in the White House, which means that, um, you know, sometimes their ambitions are furthered by ceding authority to the executive branch, at least temporarily. So uh, it's not so much today that ambition, you know, counters ambition. Sometimes the president's ambition and the, con and the members of Congress ambition dovetail. And so there's no need to check the president. In fact, you are going to defend him. And the, the opposition party, of course, is likely to oppose the president's agenda and, and the use of authority to, to, to further it. 
But if Congress is, you know, divided uh, along partisan lines, either 50-50 or, or more likely, you know, 55-45 or 60-40, that's just not a recipe for Congress being able to successfully push back. Uh, and then, of course, if you add on top of that that there are two chambers, uh, all you need is, you know, uh, a, 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 a large enough minority or majority in one chamber to prevent Congress from enacting legislation. It doesn't even need to go to the president. And if it does, the president can often veto it, right? Um, so that, you know, the, the founders gave the president a check on Congress. And although that seems like they gave a check on, for Congress to exercise against the president, that, that check has waned over time. You, know, you cannot pass legislation over a president's veto unless you have two-thirds in both chambers. And that's, that's, a, that's almost impossible in the modern era. This institutional analysis is so fascinating, and the, the interbranch dynamics in particular. I'm wondering if you can give us uh, an example of um, the way in which uh, executive power has evolved over time. I'm, and I'm thinking the specific uh, executive powers I'm thinking about are foreign affairs and war powers. Could you could you just give us some examples of how over time those powers have changed as just an illustration of the dynamics that we're talking about? Well, for war powers, it's it's a familiar story. I think at the founding, Congress was given the power to declare war, which was not just the power to issue some document. The power to declare war was the power to decide to wage it. And nations could wage war in formal and informal ways. The formal ways through this declaration, a written declaration. And so when they give the Congress this power, uh, they are basically saying no one else can declare war, right? It's, it's implicit that only the Congress can do so and that Congress has to do so through bicameralism and presentment. And so the president's not supposed to have authority to start wars. And Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, each of them say this in, in numerous uh, incidences through their presidency. They don't ever start a war on their own. But, you know, over time, um, you know, both changes in the conception of America's place in the world. We go from a very weak nation to a somewhat stronger nation to a super, super strong nation. And the perception that America has global interests and has to defend them, plus drift in constitutional understandings with respect to what it means to be commander in chief what it means to declare war. They, all those things conspire to, to create a situation where presidents now claim that they can use significant amounts of military force overseas, and that is not war within the meaning of the Constitution. Why is that? Because practice has essentially ceded that authority to the presidents, and the, you know, the Office of Legal Counsel, the Department of Justice says, whatever presidents have done overseas, future presidents can do, that is not war. Whatever presidents have yet to do uh, may be war, and maybe a president can't do that. But of course, that's an unstable situation, because if practice makes the presidency, there's there really are no permanent limits to the president's capacity to seize still more war powers. And, you know, I'll say one final thing. You know, the Korean War was a massive land war. If practice makes the presidency, it appears as if the president can involve the nation in a massive land war involving hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops and, and thousands upon thousands of U.S. casualties. So, I, I, you know, even though the OLC claims there's something left of the old regime, not, not much is. And, and what do you make of all this, Sai? I mean, the, this more powerful presidency, um, do we need a more powerful president in the modern world? Is this a bad thing, a good thing, a mixed thing? How, how, how do you think about what's at stake in, in this expansion? 
Well, you know, I'm an originalist, Risa, so I, I look at it, you know, uh, with some disdain. I, I don't know what it means to say that the president has to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution once you say that he can change it by unilateral acts. And that, of course, is the modern doctrine, right? That practice makes perfect. You can amend the Constitution, the executive can, through repetitive acts. And I say in the book, you know, sometimes one act is enough. And this was, you know, said in the 19th century, and there are examples of it um, in the 19th and 20th century, where one president takes an act and then every successor just cites it. Um, and, if, you know, uh, so I think, I think the idea of the executive being bound to law is is somewhat illusory if the if the president and the executive branch itself understands that it can change the law not through some formalized process but just by by breaking it we we only tend to focus on this when it happens right before our eyes right there will be people that oppose it and there'll be people that support it you know the president will tend to violate existing legal norms when it's in service of his agenda or the party's agenda. And in that context, they can always expect some party faithful, some party faithful within Congress to come to their defense, which means the attempt to push back is often still born in the sense that if half the Congress and half the country support whatever the president has done, the president's not going to be stopped. It is really interesting you point out that the, you know, this, this is a bipartisan issue. It's a bipartisan dynamic that is uh, either party will engage in this when they're when they're in power and there will always be an inbuilt base of support within the party for that. It's hard for me, you know, being embedded in our society to to take political parties out of the equation. So, but it seems as though the rise of political parties has had just an enormous impact on this. Um how do you think all this would look if we didn't have political parties? Or is that just, I, I, I can't conceive of it. Can, can you, could you explain what that would look like? Well, I, I mean, that's an interesting thought experiment. I, and I certainly haven't given it uh, deep thought, but I, I would suspect we'd still have some of the same things we have now, right? I mean, presidents, you know, seize new authority because they want power and fame, right? That's sort of what politicians want, right? Some people want cookies and other people want toys and some people want power and fame. I think they face pressure to keep their promises, right? In a regime where they don't make promises, they don't have anything to keep. But if you're making a laundry list of promises, you want to be seen as uh, falling through on them, certainly for history's sake, but also for re-election's sake. So I guess what I'm trying to say, Leslie, is there would be other forces impelling presidents forward and other reasons why they would succeed even if we didn't have parties. Parties certainly help. Congress would still be divided, right, even if there weren't any parties, and that would tend to make it more difficult for Congress to check the president. I mean, think of impeachment. Impeachment, you know, is an impossible process, not merely because of parties. You need two-thirds of the Senate. You know, a two-thirds threshold is a, is a structural barrier that exists independent of, of party affiliation. So you said earlier in response to one of my questions, you know, I'm an originalist. And uh, as you describe this, the, you know, the, you, you talk about the living presidency and, and compare it to the living constitution. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about what's problematic in the evolution, both in the presidency and the constitution, right? What, what, why are you an originalist? What is it about the evolution that, that you find challenging? So I thank you for that question. Great question, Mesa. I think I, a lot of people, when they think of the living constitution, tend to think of rights. And, and my point is, however bad 
people, some people might think the presidency is, or however, you know, uh, expansive it's become in, in a way that's problematic, there really aren't any limits to how powerful it can become, right? Because if you, would go, if you go back to the founding and you said, can you imagine that the president will one day start wars? Their, their answer is going to be no, because that's why we gave Congress the power to declare war. What, what seems natural to us um, would have been astounding at the founding, because they just wouldn't have conceived the text being reconceptualized in this way. So, you know, the book is a plea to progressives to think through this, you know, this very important part of the Constitution, and then ask them, you know, how do you, what are you going to do to to cabin this, or do you, are you really okay with it? You know, a single president is far more important in terms of constitutional change than any Supreme Court justice. If we think about Lincoln or Roosevelt or Reagan, they not only appointed the justices that then had a tremendous impact on the future course of constitutional law, they were able to reconceptualize constitutional law and get Congress to do various things while they were presidents. And so, you know, it's it. You know, we focus on the courts and con law, you know, because they have the cases. But uh, a lot of the constitutional change is occurring outside the courts, and it's being directed by the president. And so, is this is it a healthy system where, you know, majorities are voting for the president often without constitutional? Um, change in mind, and then the, the you know the president's able to affect great great constitutional change. It doesn't seem like a healthy system to me. So, do you think what we have is kind of a hydraulic effect, where because formal constitutional change is so hard, energy for change kind of finds other avenues and it manifests in other ways? I, I look. I think a you know legal or constitutional drift is inevitable, even if you have a constitution that's easily changed. So, but B, I totally agree with you that if you make it rather difficult to amend the constitution, you can expect people to try to amend it in informal ways because there, you know, there might be a supermajority for something, but not enough to pass the amendment. They're just going to, you know, uh, discover other ways of doing so. And I think, you know, I think that's understandable. I think from the perspective of the founders, they thought they were moving from a system of impossible change, unanimous state consent, to a system that seemed reasonable. And it was from their perspective, it's just it's not from ours. Um, but you know, having said that, it's also the case that if you have informal constitutional change, you will not make use of the formal system. Would we have a, you know, a, a broader scope of federal power, legislative power, written into the Constitution if the court had continually struck down laws as being beyond the Commerce Clause? I, I would think so. Um, but you don't have to use the system in, uh, you know, Article Article 5 if if you can use the other system, right? So you're right, there's, there's definitely some sort of hydraulic pressure. And if you look at the, you know, most of the la last several amendments, they're really more about, you know, housekeeping than they are about the scope of federal power. There's, there's a couple of things there, right? But they're actually vestiges of a, a previous era, right? The, you know that 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 reflect a, a a more cramped sense of legislative power that you wouldn't need to even pass today, given the more capacious conception of of legislative power.
So Sai, the the picture that you paint is a fairly uh, depressing one that, uh, that, <laughs> that, well, you know, the Constitution created the possibility of these powers and they weren't initially, uh, you know, all used. But then as time has passed, more and more have become used and the institutions that were intended to check the powers have become weaker. Uh, and, and we've added to them, you know, the party system and the popular conception of the presidency that make it harder for them to be exercised. And so is there something that gives you optimism that, uh, that there, that, that there is some mechanism that could change this or, or do, do you see hope for, um, a more restrained presidency in the future? Or are you just, you know, are you diagnosing the problem, but, but don't see, uh, any way out of it? Well, uh, first of all, I, the book isn't meant to be a downer. Uh, and I didn't write it that way. And I didn't write it feeling depressed. I, you know, it's meant to be at least, you know, mostly descriptive, but there is obviously some sort of normative claim there as well. The last chapter, you know, is focused on what can be done. And um, I, I, I think there are things that Congress could do. And so I have like a baker's dozen of reforms. You know, it, it runs the gamut from bulking itself up basically hiring more staff to, to deal with the disadvantage it has in information and, and personnel vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch to, you know, passing a better War Powers Act to, you know, passing more informer and key TAM statutes to ensure that the executive's uh, properly executing the law. So there's, a, there's just, you know, there, no, I've got plenty of things that Congress could do, and I had the pleasure of testifying before the House Rules Committee um, a month or two ago, and it was a very interesting experience because there was actually no partisanship in the committee proceedings. Every single member seemed committed to the idea of reigning in uh, executive power. They all understood that their institution was weaker. And as I told them, most of you will never be president, so you should not favor executive power on the theory that you will someday wield it. And they, of course, recognize that. Um, and I, so I, I mean, I think right now it's the perfect veil of ignorance. No one knows who's, who the next president will be. This is the only time where you can actually think about possibly reforming the presidency. And whether you have to make it effective in, you know, six months or four years to get Donald Trump to sign it, um, it's better than nothing, right? So there's plenty that could be done. And I think there are some members of Congress, you know, who are, who are thinking about it. And of course, there are other members who are fighting trench warfare either for or against the president. Thank you so much, Sai. This has been a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you guys for making it all possible. So, Risa, that was really interesting. And I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk to Sai about his book. You know, his first book says the presidency was always pretty capacious. The, the legal rules that were set for the presidency made it a much stronger executive than was the norm at that time, which I think is really interesting and a really important point that often gets lost because for us looking back, it seems like it's narrow, but for them at the time, it was quite broad. And then he says, you know, that, that already fairly capacious 
uh, conception of an executive has been shaped and transformed and expanded through a kind of combination of social and political forces and legal interpretation as time has gone on. And I see, as we've seen in so many other episodes, this symbiotic relationship between law and extra legal forces and how they shape each other. And it's just really interesting to think about that in the context of the presidency. I agree completely. And, you know, one of the things I think is so interesting about the story Sai is telling is most folks uh, who are thinking about the power of the presidency today would probably start with FDR, um, thinking about the fears of dictatorial presidency during the 1930s when you have the rise of dictatorships, Mussolini and Hitler in, uh, uh, in Europe and, and in other countries. And people started to see that with Roosevelt and his response to the New Deal. Um, but Sai takes us way further back than that, right? He says, no, this isn't just about the powers the president is exercising. It's really about the nature of how the presidency is thought of and conceived of in a larger institutional framework. And he takes you all the way back to Andrew Jackson, right, in the, uh, the early, uh, early 19th century. You know, I think one thing that's really interesting about Sai's work is the institutional analysis and um, how much the, the Constitution itself was a, a product of, of various assumptions about how uh, institutions would play off against each other, with each other and against each other, and how um, actually over the last, you know, many, many years, those dynamics have been different from what anyone necessarily anticipated I agree. And I, uh, from our perspective, you know, you and I, we have lumper splitter, we have uh, uh, liberty equality, we've got various differences, but we're both pretty far on the right end of thinking about the Constitution. So it's good to have the structure. It's yes. good to have Sai come in and, and talk to us about the structure and think about that. And I, I think his linking of the living presidency with the living Constitution, um, I think we're both pushing back on that a little bit in this conversation, but the link is certainly one that I think is uh, important to think about. That's exactly right. That wraps up this episode of Common Law. We hope you'll join us next time for more stories about when law changed the world and when the world changed the law. If you're tired of social distancing, get closer to us by telling us what you think. Rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you hear the show. To learn more about this episode and catch up on others, visit us at commonlawpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Common Law UVA. In two weeks, we'll be back with our next guest, Harvard Law Professor Richard Lazarus. He'll be discussing his new book, The Rule of Five, about a landmark environmental law case at the Supreme Court. Common Law comes to you from the University of Virginia School of Law. Today's episode was produced by Sidney Holloman, Robert Armengall, and Mary Wood with help from Virginia Kane. This show is recorded remotely via our cell phones. I'm Risa Golubov. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. We hope you stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time.